Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's word together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word once again. Father, we recognize that even in this world, any formal documents are in writing. And Lord, you've given us your word written down that spans the ages. Lord, that reveals everything that we need for this life and for eternity. And so, Father, as we continue to study this morning, we just pray you help us to look with eyes that are opened, Lord, not clouded by our own preconceived ideas. Lord, to receive with hearts that are ploughed, Lord, ready to accept the seed of your word into the, the soil of our hearts. And speak to us, we pray, Lord. Lord, we're all in different places in our lives, different pressures, different situations we're going through and experiencing. But Lord, this morning I believe you have something for each one of us. So Father, speak to us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going through the book of First Kings. First Kings, Second Kings, although we have two books in our English Bibles, originally it was just one document, uh, along with Samuel uh, originally as well. Uh, and these books, the books of the kingdom, uh, as they're sometimes referred to, um, were just one uh, document. That, of course, from a, a scroll point of view, it gets too long if it's all on one scroll. So they were separated up, and that's why we have the divisions we do. So there's no real distinction, and uh, the Lord willing, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll move on into Second Kings. Um, there's no real distinction. Distinction there, other than we just carry on with the same narrative as we're looking at now. What we've seen is, though, from around about um, 987 BC when Solomon uh, is on the throne, and then after Solomon, the kingdom divides into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, The southern kingdom carries on the dynasty of David. And there's there's, uh, five good kings amongst all of the 20 kings of the south. There's not a single good king amongst the kings of the north. Uh, And we see them just go from bad to worse. Despite all that God had given them, all that they had, they still rejected God. They rejected God's word. They rejected the prophets of God that came to speak to them and decided they wanted to do it their way. And typically that is the way man tends to do things right from the time of the Garden of Eden. It was... uh, Adam and Eve deciding that, uh, well, I know God said this, but... And that's kind of typically been the way man has been ever since. You know, regardless of what God has said, we'll put that to one side. We'll try and do what we think. Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And uh, we'll see that with these kings, and we've seen already, and it continues, um, by rejecting God, they don't bring any blessing or benefit to their lives. They just bring chaos, mess, confusion and problems. So we're carrying on really looking at the the life of King Ahab uh, of Israel. Now up until this point we've already been told that he's the worst king um, that's uh, entered the scene from God's perspective. Um, And already God has done a number of things to turn the heart of this king back to him. That incredible incident that we saw on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, when all the prophets of Baal are gathered together and Elijah's there as the only prophet of God. And of course God does this incredible miracle there in front of the whole nation. And then we've seen last week this confederacy of 32 kings plus Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, allied against just little Israel. And as we saw last week in the text, Israel seemed just like little lambs compared to this great army that was amassed against them. And yet God gives them victory. 
And you'd think that would be enough to make a king like Ahab turn around and say, okay, well, I'm going to trust God from now on. But clearly he doesn't. And so we pick up in chapter 21, which is where we've got to, and read verse 1. It came to pass after these things, things we've just been discussing there, that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Uh, vineyards we find a number of times in scripture um, and it's an interesting situation we're going to see with this vineyard and we're going to conclude in a while looking about uh, a parable that Jesus gave about another vineyard and draw some conclusions from this as well. Um, just to give you some idea where we're looking, at Samaria in the northern kingdom, so this divide line here shows really the division between the southern kingdom of Judah as it was known and the northern kingdom of Israel. And then originally, uh, Terza, this place here, was the capital. And then Ahab's father, Omri, effectively shifts the capital to Samaria, which is here. Now, this red line kind of indicates to a point, not exactly, but roughly where the Jezreel Valley runs through uh, center, the center of Israel. Some of you have been in Israel, you've seen the Jezreel Valley, a massive, wide-open expanse. And this is the place that's spoken of in the book of Revelation, uh, the place here, Megiddo, and this valley is also known as Armageddon, this place here. Um, so the name you're familiar with, of course. Um, now, this is also called the Plain of Jezreel. The plain actually starts up here, but runs down. Um, but clearly this town that's in reference here and where this vineyard is, is located right next to, down the bottom part of this valley, down down here next to Samaria. So that's where we are geographically, of course, Mediterranean Sea over that side, Dead Sea there, and the Sea of Galilee up there. So, and we carry on. And it says, And Ahab spoke unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it's near unto my house, and I will give thee for a better vineyard than, than it, or if it seem good to thee, then I will give thee the worth of it in money. So, just trying to make a business deal. It's nice and close to my house. It'd be great. I'd like it. I want to have it as a garden of herbs and uh, so on. It seems like a reasonable offer, doesn't it? He's saying, you know, I'll either give you a better vineyard somewhere else or I'm going to pay you the, the value of it. Well, of course, this isn't a good offer to a godly Jew, as we'll see as we go on in just a moment. Uh, Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give the inheritance of my father's unto thee. You see, Naboth doesn't even mention vineyard in this. He's not looking at, oh, I need a vineyard. He's talking about the inheritance of his fathers. Way back in the Torah, the land had been divided up amongst the tribes of Israel. And the selling of land was prohibited in the Torah. It was to stay amongst the families. So in Numbers 36, Verse 7 we read, So shall, the, shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. As far as Naboth is concerned, as a godly Jew, he can't do this. Because the law has already expressly said, you are not to sell your land. Leviticus 25 verse 23 onwards says, The land shall not be sold forever. For the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So God making it clear that the land belongs to him, not the United Nations or anybody else, even though there's so much debate over this land even today. The land belongs to God, and he's given it, for now, to the children of Israel. And he's told them that they're not to sell it. And so Nabal's response isn't just a kind of a spoil, no, this is mine, I'm not going to share, or anything silly like that. Naboth is... Sticking to the law, sticking to the word of God as has been revealed. And he's doing the right thing. 
And of course, Ahab's request is a very ungodly request. It's very much kind of defying God uh, in what he's doing here. And so, verse 4, Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased, because the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers, and he had laid him down uh, so he laid him down upon his bed and turned his face away and would eat no bread. Now in the Hebrew, this is called sulking. It's the same in the English. And that's what he's doing. He's just grumpy because he hasn't got his own way. Of course, Ahab's a king that's kind of used to doing what he wants and getting what he wants. Of course, with God, whatever state you're in, you have everything. Naboth's an example of that. You know, he's satisfied with what God's given him. And if you are walking with God, then whatever state, as Paul says, he'd learn that whatever state he was in, you know, whether he had much or little, plenty or lacking, he was still satisfied because with God, you have everything. But the flip side of that is without God, whatever your state, you have nothing. And how often do we see with celebrities and people in the world who seem to have everything, they have nothing. And they end up giving it all away or throwing it away or losing it or, you know, end up killing themselves, committing suicide or whatever. You know, it doesn't bring the satisfaction they thought it would bring. Again, with God, you've got everything. But Jezebel, here she comes. She's been a little bit quiet the last few chapters, but back on the scene, his wife. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad? That thou hast eaten no bread. Now whether she made the bread and she's grumpy because he didn't eat her bread, I don't know, it's not clarified there, but she sort of recognises that he's not eaten. And, and he said unto her, Because I spoke unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, And I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Are you the king or not? Is basically what she's asking him. Arise, eat bread, and let thy heart be merry. Don't worry, I'll get it for you. That's what she says. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she says, leave it to me, darling. I'll sort this out. I recognize you're unhappy. No wife likes an unhappy husband. And so she's going to try and resolve this. Now straight away, this is going to be another act of defiance against God. And then we read this. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. This is incredible. You know, in almost any other culture in the world, this would be considered an act of treason worthy of death. If the queen were to do something and usurp the authority of the king or to do something without his express approval. This is, this is just remarkable. You know, the arrogance and presumption to use the king's name here, again, without his permission. Imagine, I mean, we, we have other examples. Think of Ahasuerus, you know, the, the king who was, became, became king and the, the husband of then later of Esther. You know, Esther, even to walk into the presence of the king, unless the king raised his royal scepter, she'd be put to death. And then this woman, Jezebel, Assuming that she can just do this in his name. And uh, this just, just speaks very much of the character of this individual. And we read on and she says, She wrote letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set neighbours on high among the people. So going to have this lovely kind of uh, arrangement. Everybody's to be gathered together. Neighbours to be put in some place of uh, honour. 
and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. Of course, the penalty in the Torah, in the law, for blasphemy was to be stoned. And so the whole thing here is just an absolute setup. And these two individuals are quite happy to lie, come and tell lies, and of course Naboth is then arrested effectively, taken out and stoned. And the men of the, uh, the city, even the elders and the nobles who were with inhabitants of the city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, uh, sorry, as it was written in the letters which she sent unto them. They proclaimed the fast and set Naboth on high among the people. You know, these individuals, they knew this was wrong. They knew that Naboth was a righteous man, but they still went ahead. You know, it's been said many a time that for evil men to prosper, all it takes is for good men to do nothing. And this situation, not one of these individuals was prepared to stand up against this wicked queen. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the two men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. There's seemingly no... Evidence is sought. The reason we have two, of course, is that the law required two witnesses. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. When Naboth's troubles were over, he was then in paradise. And for eternity, I've got no doubt that he will be amongst those who are blessed of God and will have an eternity with God. The problems for Jezebel and Ahab are just beginning now. They sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For <laughs> guess what? Naboth is not alive, but he's dead. So, problem solved. Off you go, king. It's all yours. And it came to pass when Ahab, Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, we're going to see in a minute that Elijah, who's been quiet for the last few chapters, is going to come back on the scene. But before we do that, I want to take you to the book of Revelation, because this portion that we've just read appears in Revelation, and it's very interesting in the context, and I think it will be helpful this morning just to look at this. And so, particularly, we're interested in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and the letters there that Jesus writes to these seven churches. Now, one of the things, just to mention at the start, in Revelation chapter 1, we find that there's a divine outline to the book of Revelation because John is told to write the things which he has seen. Now, those things we have recorded in chapter 1 of Revelation. Then... The, John is told to write the things which are, the things which existed at that time. At that time, the churches existed. And so really, it seems to depict the church age, the things that were present at that time. And the final category is the things which shall be hereafter, the things that would follow on after the things which currently are. And by the way, a lot of people get very confused about the book of Revelation, and oh, it's very hard to understand. Well, you just need to read the opening verse. Because God gave this revelation so that we would understand. So anybody that tells you this is hard to understand has totally missed the point of God giving it in the first place. God has given this so that we would understand. <clears throat> now, chapter 1, 
as I said, deals with the things that have been, the things that are recorded up until that point. Then chapter 2 and 3 are the things which are, the church ages, the churches that are addressed. And then the remainder of the book, from chapter 4 to chapter 22, deal with the things which shall be after the time of the church. So we currently are still in this era of chapter 2 and 3, of this period of time. Now, there's four levels of meaning to the book of Revelation, and uh, all sorts of people try and give various interpretations, but it's helpful if we understand that each of these letters, particularly, are written to local churches. There's a, a local, specific application. We're told in chapter 1, verse 11, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. There were churches that existed at that time in Asia Minor, the area of Turkey today. So there were real churches, real letters sent to them. So there was a local application. There was a personal application to these letters as well. Because in Revelation 2.7 it says, He that has an ear. Now that applies to anybody that reads this. There's a reference to you. There's something for you to learn in this as well. Then we find that there are messages to all churches as well. Because although there's seven churches that are addressed, we're told in Revelation 2.7 and elsewhere, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Plural. So all of the churches were to benefit from the things written in these letters, not just the recipient itself. And then finally we have the prophetic view. We have seven church ages that are outlined. And we find again in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 that that which is recorded in this book are words of prophecy. And that should come as no surprise. And it's the prophetic view that I want to just look at this morning because it has a bearing on this particular portion in 1 Kings 21 that we've just read this morning. The first of the letters is written to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus, the name means love of espousal. And it really deals with that first church age. The second letter, the church of Smyrna. Smyrna means suffering. It comes from the root word meaning myrrh, which is to be crushed. Then we have Pergamos, and the name means mixed marriage. In Gamos, we have polygamy and monogamy and so on, in reference to marriage. And per, when you put that before a word, is such as perversion, it's twisting something. So it's like a mixed or twisted marriage is the idea of the name of the essential place. Thyatira, the name simply means continual sacrifice, and that's the one that in a short while we'll be focusing on. Sardis, the name just means remnant. And Philadelphia, well the name there means brotherly love. Everybody would like to be part of that church, wouldn't they? And then finally, Laodicea, the rule of the people. The, the, the laity, again the idea there, the rule of the people. Now, in the order that they're in, it is now a matter of historical record that these map out the historical ages of the church. The Ephesus addresses the first church age. Smyrna then deals with the time that the church suddenly found itself being heavily persecuted. That takes us up to the time of Constantine, where the church kind of got married to the world. Then we find the time of Thyatira, which is when the church, under the Roman Catholic Church, embrace things such as transubstantiation, continual sacrifice, the mass, and so on. Then we have the remnant, the Protestant church, those that came out of the Catholic church system. Then we have an era, an era of brotherly love, the church represented by Philadelphia. And then, arguably the time that we're in now, Laodicea, the rule of the people. 
where just like it was in the time of Judges, everybody's doing what seems right in their own eyes. Not just in the world, but in the church as well. Almost anything can go. Let's just have a quick look at these in a bit more detail. Again, Ephesus, the love of his spouse. And one of the key things we see, again, the, the age really going from about 32 AD, from the beginning of the church up to the end of the first century. Um, this parallels, by the way, the parables in Matthew 13. Because those parables also map out the history of the church from that point, prophetically. Revelation 2 verse 5, it says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. There's a promise to this church that if they didn't get things sorted, they would be removed. The church of Ephesus is no longer. You know, the, 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 there's other churches that have existed down through the ages, but this church fizzled out. Although they started well, they had a real zeal and a love for doctrine and so on. They'd forgotten their first love. And this is one of the things that they're challenged about in the letter that Jesus writes to them. That church wasn't to go on forever. But then we move on to the church of Smyrna, as I said already, means suffering. And really takes us from about 100 AD up to 313 AD. This period of the persecution of the early church, where the Christians and the lions were on the same bill in the Colosseum and so on. This parallels the parable in Matthew 13, where we have the tares that were sown among the weeds. It was during this time that the devil tried to destroy the church through persecution, but that only made the church stronger. And so Satan then tries to infiltrate from within. And we find these tares sown among the wheat during this period of time. So many of the false doctrines that have come down through the ages within the church system were sown at this point by individuals who claim to be part of the church. And some of them no doubt were sincere. But so many errors crept in during that period of time. Again, just a matter of historical record. This church was told to be faithful unto death, again implying an ending. Then the church of Pergamos. The name again, as I said, means mixed marriage. Well, this is the, the Constantine church, if you like. Uh, really taken from about 313 AD up to 590 AD. Really when the papacy really fully takes over. Constantine, the, the, the history of this is of course the Constantine, Roman emperor. Um, one night he has a dream, he's about to go out for a battle at a place called Mil- Milvan Bridge. And he sees in his vision the sign of a cross in the sky. And he, these words, in this sign conquer. And so apparently Constantine decides that that's it, he's going to go out and conquer in the name of Christ. Of course, there's no such commands in Scripture to do these things, but that's how he went on. Apparently, some say from some records that at the end of his life, Constantine actually became a Christian. We don't know. But what he did do was suddenly legalize Christianity. Christianity up to this point, well, the Christians were meeting in the catacombs, the tombs under the ground, and meeting from home to home, and they were in fear of their lives. But suddenly... Christianity is now not just legalized, but the, the next emperor on from Constantine makes Christianity the state religion. And so also, Christians now move into the pagan buildings. Have you ever wondered why we have such ornate, wonderful buildings? Where did the church get all these you know, lovely decorative buildings? I mean, it's great for architecture, but it was a terrible thing for Christianity. Because what happened was that the pagans that had all these buildings suddenly became the ones that were persecuted. And then there was various others, and there's 
certain key individuals who very cleverly embraced some of the pagan ideas and merged them with Christianity, such as Christmas, Saturnalia as it was known, Babylonian festival. And that, of course, fits nicely because the Babylonians had this worship of the mother and the child. Well, we've got Mary and Jesus. Can't we just merge it together? We'll call it one thing. And we have Easter, a pagan festival named after a pagan goddess, Aishtar. And so these festivals start to get merged and many other things as well get brought into the church and again the church then starts to have these lavish ornate buildings and also the pagans used to have a raised bit where their priest would be above the people and suddenly the church went from a a, a situation where everybody was seen as being equal we were just all one body working together many parts each doing its share to suddenly having the clergy and the laity and it's actually this church we, we find that there's a reference to the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nico is where the word Nike comes from. He's to conquer. And these are people that kind of conquered. They were above the people. And this kind of infiltrates the church. And suddenly we end up with the, the religious systems as we know it today, where you have a minister or a priest who is seen as being above the people. Again, these were pagan ideas that crept into the church at this time. Interestingly enough, in Matthew 13, we have the parallel parable. Um, of the mustard seed. And a lot of people, it's, it's a lovely Sunday school story, how this you know, mustard seed grows into a lovely tree and the birds come and lodge in the branches. Isn't that pretty? No, no, because every time you look at birds in Scripture, in this context, they're seen as being the workers of iniquity. Emissaries of Satan, doing the deeds of Satan. Throughout Scripture, there's so many references that we could pull out where birds are seen in a very negative light. And we're told that those that came and snatched the seed away were the birds. So what we find here is this mustard seed, which should have grown into a bush that is only just, you know, a few feet high, becomes something it should never have been. And that's exactly what happened to the church. Because the church married the world, effectively. Pergamos, a mixed marriage. And the church and the state fused together. And of course, the Catholic church, which will follow on in a moment, this became very much what they wanted to accomplish and achieve. To rule not only over the church, but over the world. Revelation 2.16 says, Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So we move on to the fourth church age, Thyatira. Again, the name means continual sacrifice. And this really does represent the Roman Catholic Church from 590 AD up until the time of the tribulation. And I'll show you why that is so in just a moment. In Matthew, we have the parable of the woman and the leaven. Interesting, again, the the types that are used in these things. And as I say, the Roman Catholic Church took upon themselves the idea that we were to conquer the world. Now, part of that came from very sincere believers who just didn't read Scripture clearly and properly. Because the church had gone through... This horrible period of persecution. They knew in the book of Revelation that it had been prophesied that there would be a time of tribulation. And after that time of tribulation, there would be a time of peace. The Bible speaks about a thousand years when Jesus will rule on the earth. But some of them said, after the persecution had stopped, and suddenly Christians are given this great liberty and freedom, well, maybe this is the millennium. And some of them said, well, maybe the thousand years have started and we're now in this thousand years. 
Of course, one of the things they missed is that during that thousand years, Satan will be bound. Clearly, that wasn't the case historically. But nevertheless, very well-meaning but wrong individuals started putting forward the theory that they were in the tribulation. And if that, sorry, they were out of the tribulation in this millennial reign, this period of peace. And if that was the case and Jesus hadn't come back yet, maybe they'd just got it wrong and Jesus would come back at the end. So what we must do is kind of win the world, conquer the world. And of course that led to the Crusades, that led to so many other things that we've seen. Not biblical, not of God, but this attempt to rule the world. And certainly the Roman Catholic Church has never moved away from that position. We find much of the Protestant church today moving back to that idea. A few years ago we had a a thing called Kingdom Now Theology rearing its ugly head saying that we must win the world for Christ and when we've won the world then Christ can come back. When we've done it all, Jesus can come back and we go, there you go, all yours. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible makes it very clear when Jesus comes back he will claim the victory and he will establish his kingdom. And it's not something we will do for him. We're not to fight some political campaign. Revelation 2, 21 and 22. I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. There's a promise given to this church that they would be cast into great tribulation. And those that commit fornication with her. Then we come to the period of Sardis. Often seen as the the Reformation Church. Now, of course, Henry VIII, very instrumental in bringing the Church uh, of England, as it was, or as it became, out of the uh, Catholic Church. But Henry never had intentions to uh, divorce Catholicism. He wanted to have an English church that would be Catholic. That was really his intention. Of course, there were many other godly men in this country at the time that moved us away from the Catholic system, the Catholic Church. But there were was, was many other problems that, that were not addressed. A lot of the beliefs and the, the, the things that have been taught through the Catholic system were never addressed during the Reformation, particularly the attitude of the Church toward Israel, the attitude of the Church towards end times, the things that are going to happen. And it's interesting that there's not a good thing said about this Church. Funnily enough, of the Church of Thyatira representing the Catholic Church, they're commended for their good works. But the Catholic Church has done many, many good works. No question about that. And God seems to put on record that that's noted. But the Reformation Church, not a good thing said. Dealing really with a period of time from the beginning of the Reformation, 1517, up until again the time of the Tribulation, Paralleling the parable in Matthew 13 of the hidden treasure, and some liken this, of course, to the situation with Martin Luther that discovered this kind of a hidden treasure of grace. And effectively sold all he had to go and take hold of this. Of course, the parable is really speaking of Jesus, who gave up everything to come and claim his bride, his treasure. Again, this reference, Revelation 2. 21 and 22, if there, therefore thou shalt not watch, what an interesting thing to say to the Reformation Church, that they should be warned, that they should be watching. Because what do we find with the Reformation Church, by and large? They're not bothered about the return of Christ. If there, therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Very interesting. 
And then we get to the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, if you like. Now this is a a good era for the church. Again, really also going from the time of the Reformation up until the time of the Rapture. And what we should mention as well is all through this, the true church of Jesus Christ has existed. Those that have kept to the word, those that have believed scripture, relied on scripture, lived their lives according to scripture. And there are many great people that ministered or worked through this time. Interestingly, in Matthew 13, we have the pearl of great price. It's a lovely parable that Jesus gives of something that is non-kosher, a pearl. For the Jews, this is something that would be abhorrent. You know, this is something from an oyster. But of course, what is a pearl? Well, it's something that is formed by irritation within the oyster. But it's taken from its place and becomes an item of adornment. Well, think of that in regard to the church. You see, we're formed through trials and uh, tribulations and struggles that we go through. That's how the Lord allows us to grow. What is it we've been looking at in our Bible studies in the book of James? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when we go through these various trials. That's how the church is, is formed. That's how the church grows. And we'll be taken from our place, this Gentile group of people to become an item of adornment as we become the bride of Christ. Just wonderful pictures all through these things. And the promise here, not a negative thing is said of this church. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. A promise given to this church that they will escape the time of trial that is coming. Jesus made a very similar promise. He said, pray that you be counted worthy to escape all these things. That was after speaking about the time of tribulation. And then we get to the church of Laodicea, the rule of the people. All sorts of people doing whatever seemed right. Embracing new age kind of philosophy and ideas. Becoming more of a motivational thing. You know, there's lots of churches... I had somebody I worked with up in London a little while ago, and they went to one of these particular churches. And... You know, I, I said, what do they teach on Sundays? What do you, what do you go through? What do you look at? And he said, oh, it's always a really positive message. I said, okay, good, but what is it? And it turns out they were just motivational sermons. Sometimes they even use the Bible. But that's where so many churches have come. You know, it's a funny thing, I work in my profession in the sales industry. But... I find it interesting that, the, in a sense, the, the bedrock of, of selling is you try and highlight a problem and then you provide a solution. So you bring somebody to that place of realizing, actually, for me with telecoms, that there's an area of their telecom set up that they haven't considered that actually if they did this it would help them, it would benefit them. And then it's not a case of you trying to convince them, it's a case of them saying, I need that. Well, where did that come from? You see, so many of these ideas that have ended up as part of what we have to sell. If you look way back over the last 50, 60 years, a lot of the leading salespeople were Christians. And all they did was took the gospel message and just applied it into that situation. What is the gospel? It's presenting the fact that we are sinners. We're on our way to hell. We need a savior. You know, as has been used before, if a doctor were to sit you down and spend 
15, 20 minutes telling you that you have an incurable disease, that there's a poison seeping through your system, that it's going to start to affect your muscles, it's going to start to affect your eyesight, your hearing. And gradually, every system, every function in your body will start to fail. And you're going to be in immense pain. And eventually this disease will kill you. How long is it going to be before the doctor says, but I have a cure, would you be interested? I mean, how many at that point go, what, only one? Just one cure? But the world does that when the gospel's presented. What, you mean, I've got to accept Christianity, can't I accept Buddhism or Islam, or can I go some other route? Well, no, because none of those offer the cure. See, the only cure for sin is Jesus Christ. Because he paid for sin. But again, what's happened is what started off as something coming from the church is now actually fed back. And all these business gurus who do these motivational talks, it's starting to infiltrate the church. Some of the big mega churches in America, they have business people coming in to talk to their congregations, to give them these little pep talks. And interestingly enough, there's some of the business people, I've got a number of books, sales books and so on, and they cite some of these Christian leaders and say they'd be good to listen to because it's motivational. Use them to motivate your staff. Well, there's nothing of the gospel in there to offend anybody, so why not? That's the age we're really living in now, and it's the age from 1900 AD typically up until the time of the tribulation. In, in uh, Matthew 13, the dragnet is one that uh, the parable that applies to this age. We can do a further study some other time. Jesus says of this church, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Isn't that what today's church would say? And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There's so much in all of those things we could spend more time looking at. But let's move on and conclude this section, because... We find there in Ephesus, the church died out. Smyrna, the same. Pergamos, the same. But Thyatira is the promise of being cast into great tribulation. Sardis, again, the same. For the church of Philadelphia, there's the promise of being taken out before these things. And again, for Laodicea, that they would go into this time of tribulation. This threat of judgment is there. So, all of these church ages run concurrently. From the point that they begin. So they all exist. These four churches will all exist in various phases or states at the time of the end. Now, I want to go back and look at the church of Thyatira. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. That is an image of judgment that is presented to this church. That's not the image of Jesus that you want to see. And Jesus says, I know thy works and charity. See, again, commended for their works and charity, acts of service, and service and faith, and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. So there's a a commendation here for that which they've done. But notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Here she comes which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. 
Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Okay, what were the sins of Jezebel? Well, Thyatira again is rebuked because it allowed a woman called Jezebel to conduct her sins in its midst. And so those sins, again, looking back at Ahab's Jezebel, were idolatry, just as the same as this church is being accused of. Now that was worshipping a female deity. What does the Catholic Church do? They worship Mary. Without any biblical foundation whatsoever. In fact, it's drawn from Babylon. That's where the worship of mother and child originally began. Fornication. It's just simply really meaning unlawful intimate indulgence. And we could spend weeks charting and looking at the fornication that has gone on through the history of the Roman Catholic Church. But this was again what Jezebel was guilty of. This is what the woman at this church is guilty of. Again, the parallel. And no, whether this woman at this time in Thyatira was actually called Jezebel, whether that was her real name, or whether that's just a label given to her because she fits so well with her namesake. Bringing false accusations to condemn an innocent individual with the express purpose of obtaining land for the state. Well, that's what happened, as we've just seen this morning, 1 Kings 21, with Naboth and his vineyard. That's what Jezebel did. False accusations to obtain land for the state. And as I said, those are all the sins that we see carried out by the Roman Catholic Church. You see, it fits so well, you've got to just blind your eyes not to see it. I just want to read you a couple of quotes. It's from Dave Hunt from his book, A Woman Rides the Beast. And he says, The Roman Catholic Church merged pagan rituals and idolatry with true Christianity, was full of fornication, and was also responsible for the famous Inquisition, where people were burned alive, tortured, and their lands given to the church. The Roman Catholic Church is by far the wealthiest institution on earth. The value of innumerable sculptures by such masters as Michelangelo, paintings by the world's greatest artists, and countless other art treasures which Rome possesses, not only at the Vatican, but in cathedrals around the world, is beyond calculation. You can't estimate the value of the Roman Catholic Church. One quote. At Lourdes in France, it has been reported that in one location alone, 59 solid gold chalices, rings, crucifixes, statues, uh, sorry, statues, heavy gold brooches, many encrusted with precious stones, the crown of Notre Dame of Lourdes that was made by a Paris goldsmith in 1876, and is studded with diamonds were found. These items are of inestimable value. So one of the despicable ways, of course, though, that the Catholic Church has obtained this great wealth is through the Inquisition of the Middle Ages. Of course, during that time, people were falsely accused, tortured, and eventually killed, their property and possessions being confiscated by the Roman Catholic Church, and again, all in the name of Christ. According to one historian, the punishment of the Inquisition did not cease when the victim was burned to ashes or immured for life in the Inquisition dungeons. His relatives were reduced to beggary by the law that all his possessions were forfeited. 
this is quite harrowing, but I want to just read this to you. Try to imagine being suddenly arrested in the middle of the night and taken to an unknown location, kept secret from friends and family, or from family and friends. You are not told the charges against you or the identity of your accusers, who remain unknown and thus immune from any examination to discover whether they are telling the truth. Whatever the accusation, it is accepted as fact, and you are guilty without trial. The only trial will be by the most ingeniously painful torture that continues until you confess to that unnamed crime or heresy of which you have been accused. Imagine the torment of dislocated joints, torn and seared flesh, internal injuries, broken bones on the rack and other devices, mended by doctors so that they could be torn asunder again by fresh torture. Eventually you would confess to anything to end the torment. But no matter what you confess, it never fits the secret accusation. So the torture continues until at last you expire from the unbearable trauma. Such was the fate of millions. These were real people. Mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters. All with hopes and dreams, with passions and feelings. And many with a faith that could not be broken by torture or fire. Remember that this terror... This evil of such proportions that is unimaginable today was carried on for centuries in the name of Christ by the command of those who claim to be the vicars of Christ. They are still honoured with that title by this church, by the Catholic Church, which has never admitted that the Inquisitions were wrong. She has not repented or apologised, and she dares to pose even today as the supreme teacher and example of morals and truth. Remember also that the doctrines which supported the Inquisitions remain in force within the Roman Catholic Church even at this present time. If you want to read more of that, Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast, is very insightful. It's not pleasant reading, but from a historical point of view, it's very well researched and quotes many Catholic historians as well as he draws these things together. What is the purpose of all of this? Well, to show you that that which has happened in the past has been repeated. Just as Solomon in Ecclesiastes said. And so this Jezebel that is referenced in Revelation, depicting this church age, we see just how through this church age, through this system, the crimes that Ahab's Jezebel committed were repeated. God, of course, will judge this system, and we read about that in Revelation 17 and 18. But back to 1 Kings 21 to conclude. Because God deals with this particular situation with the original Jezebel and Ahab. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, whether he's gone down to possess it. Of all the places that they could meet, God sends Elijah here. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, hast thou killed and also taken possession? See, God holds him accountable. Even though his wife had done this, God holds Ahab accountable. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick thy blood, even thine. You know, we're told in the book of Galatians that a man will reap what he sows. And we'll find this is exactly the end. As Naboth had died, he'd been stoned, and clearly the dogs had gone and licked up the blood. 
the same thing is going to happen to Ahab. In fact, in Deuteronomy 19, we read, picking up verse 16, If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make a diligent inquisition, and behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shall I put the evil away from among you. And it's interesting that just as Ahab had allowed, because you can't say he didn't know about this, just as he's allowed to happen, or so that is going to be visited back on him. And Ahab said to Elijah, Has thou found me, O mine enemy? (laughs) Interesting, isn't it, how the messenger is so often seen to be the enemy. But he's just speaking God's words. And he answered, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. What a phrase to have recorded in scripture of you. That you've sold yourself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity. And will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. And yes, we've said this before, this phrase has occurred. That's exactly what the Hebrew implies. It's referring to obviously male descendants all being cut off from Ahab. Verse 22 carries on. And will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember him? And like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And these are the strongest words now that Elijah has ever spoken to Ahab. And of Jezebel also the Lord's, uh, spoke the Lord saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city shall the dogs eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Notice again reference to the fowls of the air in a negative context. Now we have Ahab's obituary recorded in advance. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. He had a choice, but he allowed it. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord did cast out before the children of Israel. That's the record we have of Ahab. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes, finally, and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. This is finally on behalf of Ahab, genuine repentance. But is it too late? And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, I wonder how Elijah took it this time when the Lord speaks to him and says go and give this message to Ahab seest thou how Ahab humbles himself before me because he humbles himself before me I will not bring the evil in his days but in his son's days I will bring the evil upon his house what a statement what grace you know you're driving a car you make it across an amber traffic light and then you try and justify yourself, it was only Amber. And then you look in your mirror and somebody else has done the same thing. And you think, that was dangerous. Yeah? I've seen it on a daily basis in London, getting on the trains coming out of Waterloo. 
You get to a train that's just about to leave, it's already overcrowded, and you just about squeeze on, and people give you kind of looks, and you're kind of like, please, just let me on. And you get on, and they let you in, and you're standing there, and you're thinking, well, if no one else is going to get on now, somebody else then comes in and tries to push their way in. And then suddenly, you become a confederacy with everybody else, and you've got to try and stop them getting on. 30 seconds ago, they let you on. Do you see how we treat grace? How quick we are to be grateful to receive it ourselves, but when somebody else gets it, how do we respond? Aren't you glad that God isn't that way? You see, you stand by God's grace alone. You didn't deserve it. You see, we look at Ahab and the natural response here is, how could God let him off after all that he's done? Well, the same way that he let you off after all that you've done. After all the sin that you've committed, every thought. Oswald Chambers makes the comment in one of his books that there is no sin committed in actuality that any one of us are not capable of impossibility. You know, you think of all the horrible, evil people in the world and we, we like to sneer at them and think, well, I'd never do that. Yeah, because you didn't have the opportunity. Because you weren't in that position at that time. But we know the depths of our own hearts. We know the things that we think that other people never get to see. As we said before, you know, this morning, if we could put up on the screen here and we could play back your life, all the thoughts, all the things that nobody else has seen, you would leave here and you'd probably never come back. You'd be so humiliated. But that would only be sharing it in the company of like-minded sinners. What's it going to be like when you're standing before a holy God? That's why we need to repent. That's why each one of us needs to come humbly before God. And just like Ahab, whatever you have done in your life, whatever has happened, just ask forgiveness. Not because you deserve it, but because God is faithful. In Ezekiel we read, God speaking, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. God's saying, I don't want to have to judge people. I don't want to have to condemn anybody to hell. The Bible says that hell was not made for man, but for the devil and his angels. Verse 27 of Ezekiel 18 says, Again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he's committed, and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. God is a gracious God. But as the Bible reminds us, now... Is the day of salvation. Because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I just want to conclude by looking just quickly at another vineyard. This is one that Jesus speaks of. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he, is, when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. He said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right that shall you receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired, 
About the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they uh, uh, supposed they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. When they received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and that was made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Did not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that is thine and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is this is thine eye evil because I am good? So shall the last be first and the first last. For many be called, but few are chosen. You know, for those who have been Christians longer, how do you feel about somebody else coming in and taking over a ministry that you were doing? Do you think you should receive more than they should? Yeah, do we think that we should receive the recognition for bearing the heat of the day? You know, what if somebody less experienced and hasn't put the effort in receives the credit for something that you've toiled, toiled for for years? You know, there's an, an onus on us to look to train up the next generation. And so often within churches, people hold on to their position and they're not willing to let somebody else come in. Because they've toiled for the heat of the day, so it's my job, I'm going to keep it. There's a lot of applications to this in our own lives. Of course, the real thing again, as we said a moment ago, it just speaks of God's grace. We need to realise that that grace... Is as effective at the end of our lives as at the beginning. But how much more blessing is there for those that recognize, that repent, that put their trust in Jesus now? Even the thing is, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But one of the things we can draw out of this situation with Ahab is that God is an amazing God with amazing grace. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, as we just meditate, mull over, think on these things, Father, help us to apply them to our own lives. Father, help us not to weight our own endeavours as being more worthy of reward. We've got what we were promised, which is something we never deserved, and that is salvation. And Father, may we have just great joy when any sinner comes to repentance. Father, for those that don't know you, stir them, we pray. Those in our families, our friends, our colleagues. Because, Lord, there is a day coming when judgment will come upon this world. And, Lord, they need to call upon you now. Father, we just thank you for these things. Lord, so much to to try and comprehend. So Lord, in the days ahead, as we have opportunity to mull over and go over these things again, just speak to us again by your Holy Spirit, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.